The scripture this morning is Acts 9, verses 20 through 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lainey. Lainey, you have a wonderful reading voice. You should be a teacher or something. You know? Hey, oh, she's a teacher. That was a good joke. I know. Um, well, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Sean, uh, the lead pastor here for Redemption Peoria. John gave you a little layout as to what Redemption Peoria is and how we operate. Um, if you don't know who I am, that's fair. Last week was my first week back. I've been on a leave of absence all of 2017 thus far, and I'm excited to be back. And this is the first time uh, walking through Acts, my first uh, go at Acts. Uh, uh, with you guys, and, and um, I'll be the, the main communicator throughout this time. You're still obviously going to hear from elders and, and, and other um, godly men up here. So let me, uh, let me start us off very quickly by reading something in Acts uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read through the NIV, and this is actually where I want to start, and then I'm going to give us a little background. But this is Acts 8. It, it's going to be different from your ESV translations, but just hear it. And Saul approved of his execution. His is Stephen. If you're not familiar with where we are in the story, I'll explain it. But just know this guy named Stephen uh, was just uh, murdered. And Saul approved of it. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great limitation over him. But Saul was ravaging. That word ravaging in Greek is luminami, which is like devastating. A little close to luminati, just saying. Um, was ravaging or destroying the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, so what we have is this guy Saul, he's cool with killing people, specifically Christians, ravaging the church, destroying the church, trying to remove the church, while doing this, dragging people off to prison. The church is suffering great pains during this time. And then I'm going to read Acts 9, 19 and 20 and verse 31, which is the beginning and end of our passage today. This is what it says based on what we just read in Acts uh, uh, chapter 8. For some days he, the he now is Saul, He was with the disciples at Damascus. So 
I don't know if he's with the disciples to destroy him. We don't know, right? He's with the disciples at uh, Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So he's talking to the Jews saying, he is the son of God. So the church throughout all of Judea and Samaria, uh, or Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So now we have this picture of this guy, Saul, who's with the disciples, proclaiming Jesus, and there's peace within the church. Barna came out with uh, some research in 2008 that says, as the millennia turned into the 2000s and the century turned over, the average churchgoer, um, when polled, hey, how often do you go to church? And they would say, I go to church on an average, regular basis, was once a month, okay? Now, I'm not, it's neither here nor there. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty about that, though you should. Um, just kidding. Uh, but but that's not, honestly not my point to bring it up. My point is, if you came one month ago, and you read Acts 8 verses 1 through 3 and then you came today, you're going what just happened? Right? There's this huge gap that we have no idea and so what I want to do is I want to catch us up to exactly what happened and even really bleed into what what took place in Acts 9 1 through uh, 19 and really get at some of that. But because this is my first time with you guys in Acts, I want to catch us up all together for my sake. I know if you've been faithful and been, been coming these last four months and you've kind of been at Acts, you've heard some of this, but let me just make sure we're all on the same page, at least for, for my sake. The book of Acts is written with this idea that Jesus um, is commissioning his church in Acts 1 to go to the ends of the earth, right? And so we see that the book of Acts is about mission. Now, the book of Acts is actually a second volume from Luke. And I don't know if you know this, but Luke is actually, according to verse and chapter, the most prominent or in sheer volume writes the most in the New Testament. So you actually hear often, Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. That's not true. If you were to count just verses and chapters, it would actually be Luke first, then John, and then Paul. FYI, for your theology nerds. Um, but regardless, so, so he's writing the second volume and we're, we're kind of seeing what the, the church is going through the, the move of the spirit, the suffering and, and the simplicity in acts two that we see verses two through four, or 42 through 48. Well, eventually we see this uh, great wave of persecution take place. And, and this guy named Saul is on his way to kill more Christians. And this is what Tom Schrader preached two weeks ago. He's knocked down onto the ground, sees Jesus in the sky and is completely dumbfounded by what is told of him. Okay. And so we pick up this story because Saul then goes blind. Uh, a disciple meets him, talks with him, encounters with him and kind of explains some things. And now we get this story that, that Saul, which his name isn't Paul yet, but I might use it interchangeably on accident. Saul is a completely changed person. And that's where we're getting our text. That's ultimately uh, uh, where we're, we're going to pick up. So I want to say this very quickly. What we're going to read from this point on in the book of Acts, you will, for the most part, be able to line up uh, the rest of, or the most of, of the New Testament in the epistles, the epistles of Paul, with somewhere in Acts. Like, he'll mention in 1 Corinthians the lowering of the basket that we read today. The letters are written in, you know, we'll, we'll get some, some uh, semblance of what's going on. It's kind of this timeline for us to see how these other epistles are written. So just be aware of that. Um, Acts Eight and nine, all the way to 13 is kind of this change. So we go from Peter really focusing in on the Jews to, to moving more now towards Paul and eight through 13 is kind of this change from Peter to Paul and Jew to the Gentiles. Okay. Just be aware. That's kind of an overview of what we have. Uh, when we get to Paul, you guys, you're going to see a lot of maps. You're going to feel really cool. And like, you know, things about uh, Paul and all that. So that's cool, I guess. Um, let, let's do it. Let's get our, our, uh, our text in today. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this verse by verse, word for word. I'm going to do my best to break it down, and we're going to do this in two parts, okay? It's going to be a big Bible study. I'm going to walk us down the historicity, I don't know if that's a word, the history of it, the geography of it, why each thing is important in the narrative of Acts, and then the back half of our time, I want us to zoom out and ask, 
why is the Holy Spirit given us this part of the narrative? Why is this here? Okay? So, let's do it. Those of you who, who love uh, theology and, and, and all that, let, let's uh, spend some time on, on uh, uh, some of these verses. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogue, so he's preaching to the Jews, that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc, literally laid waste or destroyed, raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? So here is uh, Saul now talking to these Jews, and the Jews are going, Wait a minute. Aren't you actually here to push against what you're saying now? Isn't that the reason? I mean, this is wildly confusing. This would be Caillou suddenly becoming an okay cartoon character for, for children, right? This is, no, he's a terrible human. And so, so what, we, what we know about Saul and his past life and what we see in his past life is this idea of, why are you here? And I just want to simply go, yeah, that, that's why he came. He came to destroy the church. That's why he was coming where he was coming from, okay? Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That proving is, is a really important uh, 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 word there. It means like coupling or pairing together. What, what Saul is doing now is he's taking all of his Judaizing, all of his Pharisaical teaching, all of his Old Testament Torah law understanding, and he is coupling it. It means pairing or coming alongside, coupling it with Jesus. He is saying all these things we know about the Old Testament. Yes, you, you see that. And you see that I'm telling you, it's pointing to the fulfillment of the Messiah. And this is how Jesus is that. So he's proving that he's showing this to, to the Jews. So he goes and goes on confounding them, uh, baffling them. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, just so you're aware, many days is not literally like two or three days. We read in Galatians, actually chapter one, that this is three years. So after three years of Paul doing this, so many days, of course, the Bible always likes to downplay time. Jesus is going to return soon. I'm like, Come on, Jesus, let's do this already. Um, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy against or among the Jews to kill him. So the Jews don't like what Paul's doing. Every time they go, but wait. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, hold on. And they have no answer for him. Very similar to, to Jesus in that respect as far as apologetics go. And so they decide to kill him. Verse 24, and Saul learned of their plan. A day and night, uh, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his followers, so now Saul has followers within the faith, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. If you're not familiar, I, I mean, you could really honestly think of some of the way that folklore has been painted through even movies now. Think of Lord of the Rings and that there's a wall around the city. Uh, for, for these guys, they would, they would have this wall around the city, and it's not just like a like a mortar wall. This is 10, 12 feet size wall, some of these pieces, and people would actually build their houses into the wall. And so it's very likely what Luke is describing here is a window higher up that they lower him in a basket through this wall, okay? And uh, just a side note, kind of ironically, uh, Saul kind of means tall and big and handsome, and Paul, which his name will be translated into later or transferred over to, means small. So I don't know exactly how big he was, but for whatever reason, God saw it fit that, that he, you know, the people looked and go, actually, you're not really a Saul, you're more of a Paul, okay? Anyway, take that for whatever it's worth. So it's, I don't know how big the basket was, but um, he fit in it. Um, so, so here's what we got. Let me just summarize very quickly where we are. Verses 1 through 19, uh, Saul is converted. Paul's converted. He preaches in the synagogues in Damascus for a short time, immediately following that conversion. You see that in verses 19 through 22. In verse 23, the Jews find 
uh, try to find a reason to arrest Paul and try to arrest him and kill him. And then in verse 25, Paul escapes from Damascus and travels to Jerusalem. That's where we are in the narrative, okay? Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, so he gets out and goes to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. So on Thursday, I did a terrible thing. Um, On my way out of the store, I saw in the clearance section this game called Bean Boozled. Now, uh, the Myers family is always late to the board game thing, but there's this game called Bean Boozled, which I highly suggest not playing, okay? But it is just a a little thing of jelly beans, and you kind of open this thing up and, and, and set it down, and there's one bean sitting there. And this bean could be really, really good or just disgusting, okay? So you take this bean, and white is either coconut, okay, Or rotten milk, not okay, which, of course, I got rotten milk like six times, okay? But the point is, when you first take that jelly bean and you start to eat it, you're going, and we're we're waiting for the reaction. Is it good or is it bad? You don't really know. And then all of a sudden, it just hits you like dead fish. One is either barf or peach, right? You're going, yeah. And when I say it tastes like barf, hear me, it, it tastes like barf, real barf. So there was a scientist somewhere with a jelly bean, ugh. No, like, you know what I'm saying? He figured out and we made it a game. Welcome to America. Okay. So I think for for the most part, this is what the disciples are going. They're worried about being, being boozled. They're going, is he rotten milk? Is he coconut? I don't know if he's the real deal or not. I I need to figure this out. And they're, they're, they're really unsure as to to what's going on uh, with and in Paul. Verse 27, but Barnabas uh, and I want to just stop very quickly because Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Um, Luke and Gateway and Tim and Gilbert, Redemption Gateway and uh, Redemption Gilbert, actually focused a big part of their sermon on Barnabas. And, and I think he's worth exploring. It's not the first time we've seen him in Acts, and it's not going to be the last. Um, but but I just he's a key figure. We're, we're not going to hone in on, on who he is, but I think it's awesome that though the disciples don't know what to do, Barnabas comes alongside, right? I mean, what that teaches us about um, not just Barnabas, but the gospel and the outworking of the gospel that, that no, there's not really an acceptance. The disciples are kind of skittish about what's going on. Barnabas steps up. I think it's beautiful. Um, he takes him to the disciples and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So he goes to the apostles. Again, Paul recounts this story in Galatians 1. It's actually to not all of the apostles. He says he saw Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. So he goes and sees them, doesn't see all of them, and stays somewhere else with them. But he's with them for at least 15 days. Um, we'll meet, there's, uh, Paul actually saw, and at this time has a sister. We'll meet later in chapter 23. He could have stayed with her, but but we don't know for sure. But he's there in Jerusalem, continuing to do what he does as he talks with the apostles. Barnabas brings them, and, and they're like, okay, cool. So verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Now, this uh, section right here, these two verses are kind of pivotal in what's going on within Saul, okay? Meaning this, if you rewind the clock back in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are looking at all the work that's going on and saying, we can't do all of this. We need to find deacons. And John Demeter preached through this section, if you guys remember. And in doing that, they identify this one guy, Stephen. Well, from that moment, Stephen, in Acts 7 and 8, you read the story, but predominantly in Acts 7, Stephen lays the nastiest sermon down. I mean, he goes at these dudes, sheer fire. And he just, he's just, boom, 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 right? Calling like, it's your fault. 
That's, you did this. They don't like it, right? Now, what's interesting about what Stephen is, is doing in this moment, he is preaching to Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, okay? Where he is, he's preaching at that moment to Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. Paul right now is in Jerusalem preaching to Hellenistic Jews. You know what we call a Greek-speaking Jew? A Hellenistic Jew. Now, it's not like the the million people that are in Phoenix, that if someone comes from Detroit and visits a church in Phoenix and they go, well, yeah, I I don't know, I visited the church in Phoenix. No, there's like this broad scope, eclectic version of what the church looks like. That's not what is in Jerusalem. It's not like all that there's different sects of Hellenistic Jews. There's a group of Hellenistic Jews, and hear me when I say this, very, very likely, I would say he is, in this moment, Paul is standing in the exact same place, maybe not geographically, but at least in front of the same exact people that Stephen was. Crazy. In one moment, Saul's on this side going, kill him. Kill him. They lay their coats down. He's good with it. Now Saul finds himself in the very place of the man that he had murdered. This is crazy. This is crazy. And this is what he's doing. God is doing something in this. And so it's, and, and hear me, man, this is, this is a big change. This isn't like Favre showing back up in Green Bay with the, the Vikings jersey. This is more than that. This is, I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to downplay it, but if you can think during World War II, this would be on a, on a smaller scale, Hitler turning from the Nazi cause and then housing Jews. I'm serious. It, it, would, be, it would be a complete turnaround and the people are going, what's going on? Paul leaves his friends who he would only be able to associate, maybe most of his family, where he's familiar with, the temples he can regularly visit, all gone. God's done something within this man. And, and then we come to find out our last few verses says this. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea because the, the, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, tried to kill him. Uh, took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord. They lived in a different fear before, didn't they? Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers, which we we just read that at the beginning of our time. So God has obviously done something. And and, and this is where I've got to be honest. Um, The way this section of scripture reads, it kind of ends like like in a Psalms, uh, like a Selah, like an Amen. Like you read this section... And then it's kind of done. And then now what we're going to do, if you read the next verse, the camera quickly pans over to Peter again. Like, okay, here's the story of Paul's conversion. Here's what happened to Paul. Here's what happened to Paul after his conversion. And now we're going back to Peter. And I think it should cause us to stop for a moment and go, what was that? What just happened? And I think it's important uh, for many reasons. One of which we base, as far as canon goes, huge parts of our theology and doctrines on Paul's writing. So whatever God did within Paul, the Holy Spirit has used to teach us. So it's worth meditating on a moment as to what exactly took place. And I think it's two things. Um, but before I get to these two things, I want you to see the beauty of what happened with Paul. Because if you rewind the clock, the very last thing that Paul says as a non-believer, he's, he's being shown the glory of Jesus Christ. And you know what the, the last thing he says, uh, at least the way that Luke uh, records of it, he says, who are you, Lord? He goes blind, he finds his way through the city called, through the street called straight, and so on and so forth. And the question he asks is, who are you, Lord? Now, I'm guessing he said things before we got to the next section of scripture that we're at today. But I think, very intentionally, the Holy Spirit wants us to see this connection. 
that the next thing that Paul says is, after saying as a non-believer, the very first thing he says as a believer is, Jesus is the son of God. He answers his own question. Who are you, Lord? Jesus is the son of God. I, I don't know what took place in him, but I think there's two things that are worth meditating on this encounter. These first 31 verses in Acts 9. To see all the the things that that were woven in and what we just read in that narrative and why they're important. The first thing I think Paul recognizes, or Saul recognizes, to the nth degree, is that Jesus is powerful. He is legit powerful. Like, knock you off your horse, on the ground, go blind, forget everything you know, powerful. So now Paul is trying to understand everything. Everything he knew through the filter of Jesus. And he sees how big and how awesome and how powerful he really is. And the church doesn't even know what to do with this, right? Like they're looking around going, wait, 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 wait. Jesus moved on you apart from anyone else. Did, did, did you see him walk an aisle? I, I, I didn't lead him through the sinner's prayer. Did, did, did he fill out a card? No. Like Jesus is going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And the, the disciples in, in, in Jerusalem, the disciples there, they don't know what to do with this act of God. And Jesus is going, yes, I love when we work together. I love empowering you to do the work of the ministry, but don't get it twisted. It's my power. It's my power. And, and Paul is so dumbfounded by this. And listen, I, I don't want to get lost in the semantics of arguing about uh, what, what this means in regards to evil and, and, and goodness. I think, you're, I think we're missing the point. I've had the conversation of, of, of this and uh, of why God would allow certain things to happen a thousand different times. And that's not why I'm going to share these three verses. But I want to, just in Paul's writing, three verses that I think are worth looking at when we view what happened within Paul. Meaning, Paul begins to articulate what he learned during this time and from that point, And he begins to write it down. And we have this in his writings. He says things like this in Ephesians 1.11. Paul says God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. So he looks and he goes, he accomplishes, he brings about all things according to his will. I have a plan to go to Damascus, but God knows what he's doing and he has a different plan. He's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but, but he's not done there. Listen, Hebrews 1.3, he tells us that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. That word upholding is to bring about or bear. It's bearing, it's, it's sitting there. And the verb that's used is in a continual sense. So in this moment, the earth does not fall from the universe because Jesus says, stay. Stay. He, he's not done even there. In Colossians 1.17, which I would challenge you to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It's so good in Paul's writing in this, talking about the grandeur of, of who Jesus is and the majesty of who Jesus is. He says this, in him, all things hold together. Continuing in that sense, they now are being held together by Jesus. You and I don't fall apart at the seams because he looks at us and goes, stay. And Paul is going, ah, wow. And, and he's forced to connect all the dots of the way that Yahweh works in his ways, and he's forced to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And Jesus is so unbelievably powerful. We have a word for it. It's called sovereignty. Now, again, hear me. I'm not looking to debate. And if you immediately go to what I'm going at here, like to, well, what about this? And, and what about evil? And 
listen, I think those conversations worth having, and I'm down to have those conversations. That's not why I'm bringing it up here. And I don't think that's what the text is trying to do. I think, I think I, I, in a moment, I want us to stop and relish in the fact that you're not in charge. And that's good news. That's such good news. Because here you are trying to figure out how to be a perfect parent, how to be a perfect husband, how to be a good employee, how to do this right. And Jesus is going, chill, man. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. R.C. Sproul, in a book called Chosen by God, says it like this. If there is any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, then God is simply not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If there's, no, if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Perhaps that one maverick molecule will lay waste all the ground and glorious plans that God has made and promised to us. I remember my distress when I heard that Bill Volkovich, the greatest race car driver of his era, was killed in a crash in the Indianapolis 500 in 1955. The cause was later isolated to the failure of a cotter pin that cost 10 cents. Bill Volkovich had an amazing control of his race car. He was a magnificent driver. However, he was not sovereign. A part worth only a dime cost him his life. God does not have to worry about a 10-cent cotter pin wrecking his plans. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign, and therefore God is God. And Paul is, I don't don't know what what to do. I, I thought I had it all right. I thought I had this plan. And for us just to sit for a moment and relish in the fact that God is moving even apart from us in this moment in a thousand different ways. Let's talk about application, why this is huge. Because um, Jesus saved a murderer, right? He saved you. Do you remember how you were? Do you remember how many times I've heard salvation stories of people going, I would never think I would be the person reading the Bible and raising my hands in worship. They look at their past life and go, I would have never imagined. And and here, if we can just stop and go, listen, your neighbor who doesn't believe, your brother, your dad, your coworker, your friend, your classmate, who you look and go, what's the point? God is moving in a million different ways far before you ever step up to the plate. And so maybe the better question would be to ask, God, what are you already doing within them? What can I come alongside? You save people. I don't save people. I want to join in what you're doing. Do I need to put an arm around them? Do I need to walk them through? What do I need to do? I think that's Paul's recognition of whatever plans I think I have. Jesus is powerful. He is powerful. Uh, About three weeks ago, Vince, he's an elder here on Palm Sunday, came up and um, I think very pastorally, as he went through the announcements, kind of stopped and brought our attention to something that happened earlier that morning, which a lot of us, I know I wasn't aware of, that there were some bombings in Cairo and some Orthodox churches there. And later on, you obviously learned some details and and watched some of the videos and and pictures. And um, and so he kind of walked us through this. I remember jumping on CNN to find out all the details. And you're just kind of looking at the situation going, Jesus, why? Like, why? What, What are you doing? And, and you find yourself so helpless because I don't have an answer for evil. I don't know why he allows these things. Well, Christianity wrote a post about a week ago. And they talked about now the effects of what's been going on in Cairo there. Because it's predominantly, predominantly Muslim there. And I just want to read very quickly um, this brief part of this article from Christianity Today. This is what, what, um, what they describe as going on in Cairo right now. Besides frustrating the extremists who want to provoke Christians... 
Christians are actually winning Muslims. Their testimony is like a domino with incredible ramifications in the country. The spiritual ramifications run even deeper for a bishop named Bishop Thomas, who has recently received many unexpected visits of sympathy and solidarity from local Muslim sheiks and charity workers. His school has been a home for civic engagement for Muslims and Christians discussing ethics and childbearing for the sake of their kids. But now... Muslims are asking about their issue, uh, different issues altogether. When people see this attitude from Christians and the church, they ask themselves, what kind of power is this? He said, but with this witness, we must also declare the message of Christ, which we are fulfilling. Literally, we may not see the response immediately, but we will see it in the future. So we look and go, I don't know what you're doing. And Paul, I don't know what's going on, but he's doing something. He's doing something and he's moving and he's active and he's alive. Even right now, that person you want to be at church right now, God is stirring something within them. Even in this moment, he is powerful far beyond our reach. He is moving further than we could ever go. And Paul's, well, Jesus is the son of God. There's a second thing that I think he recognizes I think it's worth meditating on well. well. Um, And I think as Paul falls off his horse and he's falling on the ground, he's dumbfounded by what's going on, I think he's completely blown away by grace. Grace. Um, So I'm not sure if you're aware, maybe you're not aware of this, but the Old Testament, if you were to take all the compilation of the Old Testament and you were to hold it up to the epistles, the Old Testament is 12 times the size of all of Paul's writings. Okay? So... um, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to look for, if you were to, to, to be able to read Hebrew and Greek, you were to look, you're to look for this word kairos, which is in Greek. There's a, uh, the Hebrew word, the comparative word in Hebrew for it. And it appears 66 times, 68 technically, we'll call it 68, 68 times uh, in the Old Testament, which is 12 times the size of, of Paul's writings. And then if you were to go through just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is twice the size of Paul's writings, you're going to find that that word kairos in Greek appears 13 times, Okay. Now, being twice the size in, in the, the Gospels and 12 times the size in the Old Testament, Paul still, having a truncated version of that writing, says the word grace 144 times, almost twice as much. And don't get it twisted, y'all, because even in Acts, before we see Paul now, that word grace, karas, appears four times in the book of Acts, never referring to salvation. After Paul, three times the amount. Paul's looking at this idea that I don't know what has happened, but you are good. You have forgiven me. You have saved me. I don't deserve it. You have unbelievable amounts of grace. And Paul can't stop. He, every letter, he mentions it. Every single letter he writes, he mentions it. Over and over. He says things like, in Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, by the grace of God in this moment, I am what I am. Now, why is this important for us to hear? Hear me. This is, if we're going to zoom out and ask, God, why did you give us this section of scripture about Paul and his transformation? What, what, what do you want us to know? Hear me when I put this in front of you. We're not that different than Paul on the road to Damascus. The proclivity of our heart is self-justification. We naturally gravitate towards the fact that, well, once a month, I, I at least go twice a month. 
We naturally try to identify ourselves on the side of righteousness over and over and over again. And hear me, we're not that different from Paul in that respect. And yet Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul goes, you think because you go to church twice a month, you're good. Hear me, I've memorized the Old Testament. I'm a Jew of Jew. Let's put it a better way. I am Woods. I'm Jordan. I'm Gretzky. I know how to do this and I do it really, really well. If anyone's getting in on merit, it's me. And he's knocked off his horse and said, wrong. Wrong. And this is why Paul Paul is forced to utter the, the next following words in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever we think we're bringing to the table, may we learn from the lesson of Paul, from the encounter that he has, and now the struggles he will continue to go through, that he is powerful, that he is in control, and he has insane amounts of grace. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, a lady named Corey Tenboom, I, I read a book called The Hiding Place about eight years ago. And uh, um, it's the story, the, the Ten Boom family, it's during World War II, and, and uh, uh, the Ten Boom family was, was hiding uh, Jews during that time from the Nazi regime, right? And so they're going to house, and it's the reason it's called the hiding places, because in their home, they were able to, able to find a pocket that even when the SSS guards came in, they weren't able to find this room. Like they were told by neighbors, the Jews are there, there's Jews there, but they searched high and low, broke down walls. They couldn't find this place. It was hidden so well. Eventually they say, forget it. We know you're hiding Jews, even though they didn't find any. And they, they throw them into a, um, a concentration camp called Ravensbrook. And it's in Ravensbrook that uh, Corey and her sister, Betsy, um, obviously humiliated. I don't need to pay, paint the picture of what a concentration camp is like. So they're there in, the, in showers being watched naked and, and there's rapes going on with friends and it's all bad. Well, Corey Ten Boom obviously survives and she goes to travel through Europe, preaching in churches, really telling the story of forgiveness, how we are to forgive what the Nazis had done, right? And so there's a Sunday where she is sharing what, what God has done with, within uh, uh, his grace and how good he is. And one of the SS guards comes up uh, to her. And it's the first time she actually saw an SS guard that she knew. So it became real to her. And I want to read from the book very quickly um, some things that I copy and pasted, this section of her book here. Uh, and and I'll put, we'll put on the screen the back half of the, the quote, but just for context, let me read uh, the first half. It says this, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who stood, who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain filled, uh, fearful face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message. He said to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people who were in need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. 
Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, hear this, this is it, this is the moneymaker. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us along with that command, the love itself. So what's going on within her is saying, I cannot forgive. I don't know how to forgive. But Jesus, you've told me to forgive. I need your forgiveness. Pause on Corey Ten Boom for a moment. I think in a personal level, what is being received by Saul in this moment is the idea, Rolodexing in his mind. I mean, think what's going on with God and Saul in this. Like, here is God who, but maybe six months, two months, three weeks earlier sees Paul pulling this girl across and to be stoned to death, crucified, murdered. All the while, the mom is watching and the mom is going, God, if you're real, stop this. And so she's questioning and she's questioning and God is, is sitting there and here's Paul. And now, now Saul's standing there and it's almost as if God could say, because of you, she doubts me. I mean, by all rights and purposes, God says, you want to mess with me? I've opened up the earth on people like you, homie. You've got nothing. But suddenly, Saul's forced to rely on not his own forgiveness. I can't forgive myself. I can't believe what I've done. I can't believe how far I've gone. I can't believe what I've done to his church, to his people, to that person. The memories haunt him. And in this moment, all he has is Christ's forgiveness. All he has is grace. And from that moment, Paul can speak with boldness to say, Come to the throne of grace. I'm telling you, you weren't as righteous as I've been. And you were not as bad as I was. I'm telling you, grace is here. It's open and it's beautiful. My challenge for us as a church is to know that, to believe that's true, not just for us, but for the cause of mission. No matter how far they are, no matter how ugly their life may seem in that moment, that Their grace is not enough. Their forgiveness is not enough. Your grace is not enough. Your forgiveness is not enough, but his is. And Paul's bewildered with this idea. May we too be as as well, right? Let's pray. Father, it's not by human power or understanding. It's... uh, It's not by eloquent words or sentences spooled together to make poetic paragraphs. This is is not what we rely on. It's not by anything that I could have possibly said, but it is by your word. It is the story of you so powerfully moving in grace towards this man, Saul. It is the story of your goodness It is the story of your action and we but relish 
in the fact that you are in control. We but relish in the fact that you have more grace than we could ever tangibly, ever in a moment even grasp in our mind. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for that. So that's what we rely on. Thank you for the story. Thank you for the narrative of the early church. That in the same way we can see what you were doing in Acts 2, that you, we can see what you're doing very practically in our ecclesiology in Acts 6, we can now see in the way that you perform grace, mercy, and power in Acts 9. May this be the standard by which we read Acts, that you are both powerful and unbelievably gracious. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.